Hi, I'm Tom Power. Welcome to Toy Heart, a podcast about bluegrass. This is the last episode of season two here from Nashville is my conversation with Allison Krauss. I remember, you know, the first time I looked out in the audience and saw people singing words to our songs that only we had recorded. That was just a really crazy moment. Just never thought it would end up being there. Never thought we'd hear back from Rounder. Yeah. Never thought we would hear from Rounder in the first place. If this is your first time listening, you can hear full interviews with Jerry Douglas, Allison Brown, Bela Fleck, Larry Sparks, Jody Stecker, and so many more wherever you get your podcast. Thank you so much for listening. Later on. It's Basic Folk, where we have honest conversations with folk musicians. I'm Cindy Howes, host of the podcast. Before we get into our conversation with Steve Forbert, let's talk about ways that we can stay in touch. You can sign up for our newsletter at our website, basicfolk.com. You can follow us on social media at Basic Folk Pod. If you'd like to make a contribution, we are a listener-supported podcast. You can do so at our website, If you give at least $5 a month or $60 for the entire year, you'll gain access to our special bonus content backstage. And you can find more information on how you can contribute at basicvoke.com slash donate. All right. Steve Forbert is not a dramatic person. His stories are fairly straightforward, even though he's lived a pretty incredible life, which began in Meridian, Mississippi, as a young musician. In the hometown of Jimmy Rogers, Steve found a great guitar teacher in Virginia Shine Harvey, who claimed she was a relation to the famous singing brakeman, Jimmy Rogers. Ms. Harvey taught Steve music through performance and connected him to other young musicians in the area, who then went on to form a couple of bands. He left his town for New York City in his early 20s, where he pounded the pavement as a singer-songwriter for a couple of years before catching a break. During his climb upwards, Forbert found acceptance in New York's punk scene, especially at the historic CBGBs, where club owner Hilly Crystal gave him a chance and introduced him to his manager. From there, Steve went on to start recording records. His second album, Jackrabbit Slim, gave him his hit Romeo's Tune, which he credits giving him his career and a ticket to the show. He's releasing his latest Moving Through America with more character studies and focuses on life's oddities. It's not easy to get Steve to talk about himself and his reflections, but he's up for giving it a shot. He wrote a memoir in 2018, Big City Cat, My Life in Folk Rock, which sounds like it was a challenge for him to revisit and write about his past, not because it seems like it was filled with mistakes and scandal, but because it was so much about himself. He seems grateful for the opportunity to still have a career and does not take it for granted. He also makes some very hip and hot music references in our conversation, like bringing up rappers Megan Thee Stallion and Jack Harlow. Color me impressed. Steve Forbert is watching the Billboard Hot 100. Let's take a listen to a song from Steve's new album, and then we'll get to our conversation. Here's Fried Oysters from Steve Forbert on Basic Folk.
Thank you so much for for getting this together. I'm I'm like really pumped to talk to you. Thanks for being here. Okay, let's give it a go. All right. Um, it's just going to take me a second to set this question up. So it seems to me like going through your history, getting ready for this interview, um, listening to a lot of interviews, reading a lot of interviews, and hearing the way that you talk about um, your history versus like the way that it's written about that you were like not a fantastically dramatic person. Like I've heard you tell the story about being in Cindy Lauper's Girls Just Wanna Have Fun video. It seems like very straightforward coming from you. Like you liked her band. You met. She asked you to be in the video since, you know, Romeo's tune was such a huge hit. And that's like the end of the story. But like it seems like that's like a pretty awesome thing to happen to you. And the story could have, like, gone on with many flourishments and twists and turns. On the other hand, you're, like, a guy who likes to zoom in on details that seem pretty ordinary and create characters and turn them into songs. So here's the question. How do you see yourself relating to drama or embellishments in your own experience versus, like, really getting into the drama of the characters you create? Well, I would say I'm a pretty non-confrontational person. So I'm just trying to I, – I, I, I am not up for a lot of drama. <laughs> and uh, who needs it? Yeah. So I, I, don't, I don't see myself as, as looking for drama in, in real life. Yeah. So what would you say to that? <laughs> I would say this is a pretty non-dramatic answer. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, you grew up in Meridian, Mississippi, uh, Jimmy Rogers' hometown, in a like suburban-like setting. Your father was a retired Air National Guard colonel, which I haven't read about uh, that experience too much from you. So I'm wondering, like, what impact did his military experience have on your upbringing? Well, he was not retired. He was running a um, reconnaissance group for the National Guard. We're talking about uh, jet planes, RF-84s. He was a military person. That was his mentality. He had a lot mm -hmm. of responsibility. And they had a squadron of jets, and they had pilots, and those things, I don't know, how fast do they go, 800 miles an hour, maybe more? Oh, yeah. Uh, as you might know from the book I put out, he at first said that no, none, he didn't like the Beatles, and he didn't want any of that, no Beatle records. I couldn't buy any Beatle records. But after a while, he kind of gave up on that. Um <laughs> And then very typically, you know, I, he frowned on my growing my hair out long, like said, you know, English mop tops, the Beatles and all that. So we went through those normal changes and, and that kind of friction. The next thing you know, I was just in rock and roll bands and long hair and doing that. And he wasn't really involved in that. That's the way it was. But he was a military guy, and um, 
he brought a lot of that control home. And um, so uh, we were kind of we weren't really on the same wavelength. But it's not unusual for that time because everybody was at odds with their parents. There was that generation gap. Yeah. My my dad happened to be in the military, but I kept a low profile on it all. I wanted to pursue some, uh, music. It makes me think of Jim Morrison, who went completely, you know, extremely dramatic. Uh, and his father was a was a military guy in the Navy. I believe he was an admiral. Mm. But uh, I, 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 yeah, yeah, I, I didn't become real dramatic in my approach to my life and and certainly music and a personality music career. I read that uh, Rolling Stone article from 1980 that was written by uh, the journalist Robert Palmer, where he was talking about, it was a really interesting article, he was talking about your comfortability level with interviews at the time, and he pointed out one of your hesitations in interviews was protecting your privacy, especially your parents' privacy. As So as you've moved through your life and career in the spotlight, how have you dealt with privacy? Like, how have you held on to a sense of privacy? And what are you more comfortable with now? Well, I, um, I haven't had a real problem with it because of the way things have gone. Uh, I have I didn't rack up a string of hits and become a household name. There you go. Mm. So it, it hasn't been a problem. I've been able to do what I like. And um, as time goes by, I, I care less and less about. Look, I'm not it, as you get older, I, you, I know I'm not going to be making records that in, are in the Billboard Top 100 these days. So that's not so much of a concern anymore. And I've been pretty comfortable with what I do. I play clubs and small theaters, and it's very flexible, and it's not doesn't involve an entourage, and it doesn't involve three or four tour buses and semi-trucks or any of that stuff. So I've been able to do what I like and write songs and fortunately make records, you know, without all that other stuff. You know, now, if I had to have a lot of money and that was my one of my big uh, criteria, that would be a problem. But I don't, you know, I'm Mm -hmm. perfectly happy driving a a, a Chevy Equinox is fine. I don't need a better car. So I don't have a privacy problem. And I derailed that when I elected. Anyway, they wanted after that Robert Palmer article, they would put me on the cover of Rolling Stone. Things were taken off pretty quick and I declined. Mm. So so, you know, there you go. That's probably a big turning point to where I avoided, you know, uh, being under a real glaring spotlight. Mm hmm. Music when you were younger that you were experiencing uh, was in the Baptist church and on the radio, stuff like Peggy Lee and Steve Lawrence. Then you got into the Beatles, despite your father's best efforts to avoid that. Um, <laughs> but the thing that really did it for for you as a young person was the birds and especially their version of Mr. Tambourine Man. And that kind of marked a time when you realized that you could like make that 
type of sound. Like you could do that. How did that change the way you felt about music? And you can you describe your relation to music like before you heard the Birds and after you heard them? Well, I like the Beatles. I like the Rolling Stones. I like most everything on the radio. I was completely caught up in it. It's just that Mr. Tambourine Man clicked me into, I've got to learn to play the guitar and get it together so I can sing these songs and perform them myself. So that's what it, that's what Mr. Tambourine Man was, was like for me. But you see, it had, it was so overtly poetic compared to most of the stuff that was on the radio. It put a rock poet who changed what could be said in, in pop songs, Bob Dylan, out on the regular AM radio via mm. the birds. Mm-hmm. That's what it was like. And then it just opened up a whole wave of uh, acceptance of this more overtly poetic stuff in pop music. And very quickly after that, you were hearing things by Paul Simon, who was writing excellent songs and going places lyrically that others hadn't. And, and then the, the the process just went on. You know, soon you were hearing people like Leonard Cohen, who had already released a novel or two and some poetry. Mm-hmm. And it, it just, it, that whole lyrical side opened up. Uh, I, you know, a lot, of, a lot of that's because Mr. Tambourine Man became a top record. I'm not sure it was number one, but it probably was. Yeah. You started on acoustic guitar when you were young, and eventually uh, you were introduced to your first, it seems like your first meaningful music teacher, Virginia Shine Harvey, um, who said she was a cousin or some kind of relation to Jimmy Rogers. And it seems like Miss Harvey was like a seminal influence on you, where she not only taught you guitar in her converted chicken coop, and then also helped organize bands for you, finding other kids to play with. Uh, I think it's pretty cool that a woman musician and community organizer had such an early influence on you. What do you think her early impact has meant to your musicality and the way that you approach playing with others? Well, the thing was is that she was a performance person. She didn't want you to sit there and practice inversions and scales on the guitar. She would just ask what song you wanted to learn. That was the process each week. You'd get the lyrics, which her daughter would write up, and the chords would be over the handwritten lyrics, and that that was your thing for the next week to learn that song. So I'd learn that song and then show up next week and play it for her. Those were the lessons. You know, she was not at all into the... uh, technical aspect of you know a a lot of uh, technical guitar playing she didn't care if you could if you could play and sing then she would just listen to you and and it's just that she was so laissez-faire but she she encouraged the performing aspect of Mm -hmm. it and i'd already tried all the scales and from a jazz guitar teacher and all that and i didn't have any enthusiasm for it so she kept me in the game. That was nice. And then, as you said, she encouraged me to get together with a few other guys and start some little rock and roll bands and garage bands. She sounds like yeah. such a cool lady. She was. She was very nice. And um, uh, I don't know what all she 
she had some of the local musicians and country musicians and all that 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 converted chicken coop was was kind of a little hub for them hmm. so um she was way into pop music and for a a, a a gal who must have been in her 50s she was keeping up with stuff like all the teen magazines and all that yeah it's yeah, a yeah. little strange but she was into it went to New York City when you were 22 years old and started playing on the streets and then at the hoot nights and worked your way into opening slots at the folk clubs. However, it seemed like you made some pretty unique inlines in the punk community. Hilly Crystal had you play at CBGB's and invited the punk aficionado Danny Fields, who would then become your manager. So how did you find yourself and your music accepted in the punk world, and where did you see your style living alongside people like the Ramones and the Modern Lovers? Well, I could relate to Jonathan Richmond and the Modern Lovers. Uh, the Ramones was certainly a lot different from anything I was going to sure. be doing. Yeah. And, and I wasn't too concerned with it. I went into CBGB's looking for another place to play. And uh, I, I knew it was a uh, Unlikely, but it did work out, and I got to open a, a few shows for some of the people that were normally on the bill. Uh, Talking Heads as a trio, and John Kale, and some groups you may not have heard of, like, uh, I don't know, there was one called the Berlin Airlift that used to come in from Boston. So it was just a place to play, and, and I was, um, they were just give, giving me a shot. And yeah, that's where I met Danny Fields and it, it all worked out, but I didn't think I was needed to change or do anything to fit in with that. I, I, I just went with what they offered me. Hmm. I, I want to hear more about how the style of punk influenced or inspired your music and maybe how it continues to inspire you. It's just that I agreed with, um, the punk rock philosophy that a lot of, uh, prog rock and, particularly technical records and stuff was, was, uh, it it wasn't uh, what I was interested in. I I agree with the punk rock thing that, uh, some of those groups were, were over the top and it needed to come back down to earth. So that's, that's the thing. I, I, uh, I've never been a punk rock artist. It's not my attitude toward life, you know, Mm-hmm. I I just am not inclined to present a lot of anger that other mm-hmm. people can do. Other people can do that, right? But it's it's hard on you. I wouldn't want to do it. It's it's hard to become a yeah a focus of anger and be putting that out because it's going to come back to you. And you, you, I don't know. It's not for me. As I said when we started talking, I'm not, not a confrontational. Pr- yeah. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Yeah. You were pounding the pavement for about a year and a half back then before you garnered any interest in your music in New York. Um, But you've talked about how you were like hell-bent on doing music. You said, I wasn't thinking of quitting and going home. It just seemed about right when it finally came together. So can we talk more about your confidence back then? Like, how do you reflect on that, like, quote-unquote, like, it feels right feeling now, like... How has your confidence fared over the course of your career? 
Well, when you're young, you can focus totally on it, and I I did that, and it it did it took a little while, a year and a half, but it went well, and there was always enough coming along that that would keep me encouraged. And uh, and then I just got it got started on these decades of of writing songs. Like I said, I was able to do this, which I really loved for for all this time and make make a living and and be totally involved in something I liked. Confidence level. uh, I'm still at it, putting out a new record. (laughs) We'll see where it goes from here. Just like a lot of people, I'm I'm, uh, not as young as I used to be. I'm dealing with the changes at this point. It's undeniable that a new thing has come along in pop music. It's undeniable. And so there you go. Uh, I'm always asking myself if if I don't really like, shall we say, uh, Jack uh, Harlow. You familiar with him? No. Well, he's all the rage, but he it's 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 sort of a hip hop thing. It's I guess it's not unlike what Eminem did. But anyway, but, you know, if is it kind of like someone who was into the big band era saying they could they they didn't like the doors of the Jefferson Airplane have to deal with that now? It's 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 a new sort of thing on the radio. And, of course, I'm aware of all the Americana thing, which offers an alternative to the hip hop element and technical pop radio today. Okay, that's great. But it it. um. We'll just see how many more records I and, and songs I I come up with. We'll just see. But at this point, I've been at it for quite a while, and it's it can't you know it it can't stay workable forever. You know, finally another sort of music has come along that I really can't relate to. You know, just like my parents couldn't have related to the psychedelic sounds of Big Brother and the Holding Company. You know. So that that's something you you have to deal with. Mm-hmm. But it's been it's been decades. It's finally really 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 arrived. Hmm. You know. Mm-hmm. I wanted to talk a bit about like the concept of genres in music. Uh, they say that your music was Americana before the phrase ever existed, and I want to know like, what is your understanding of why? music was split into genres um just your your perspective on that and have you heard that like younger musicians these days aim to create genreless music like do you think there's a need for genres at all well yeah just for convenience um there's obviously so much difference between shall we say um Megan the Stallion and Jason Isbell. I mean, you're not going to, you're just, you're going to have genres because there's, there's a lot that can be done within the terminology of pop music. You know, mm-hmm. uh, there's a lot can be done. It's still kind of a three minute art form, if you will. But you, you, genres don't bother me. I mean, you're, you're going to have somebody's going to say, well, what is it? Oh, it's Americana. There you go. These terms just get thrown around. It's just for convenience. Yeah. Um, your second record from 1979, Jack Rabbit Slim, gave us Romeo's tune, 
which is interesting to note that you'd actually had it written for the first record, but saved it for the second record. And of the song, you said Romeo's tune was the song that gave me a career in music. If you can conjure up six or seven hit records, wonderful. But if you got to have one, it gives you a ticket to the show. I'd like to hear um, your thoughts on Romeo's tune's popularity, how that's changed your relationship to the song versus your other songs, and what makes you continue to still enjoy playing it at concerts and talking about it. Well, it just weathers well. It's not something that started to become dated at any point. The lyrics are, I can relate to them very well right now. I'll be singing it every night on the Southern tour that I'm fixing to start tomorrow in Austin, Texas. People still like it. There's still a, there's still a good reaction to the song. So it's kind of got a life of its own. But like I say, I, I don't have to force myself to sing it. It's not as if it was shall we say smoking in the boys room or something at the <laughs> brownsville station so it's it's just it's a it's a, a fluid thing it keeps going along with me and i keep going along with it it's okay a lot of your stories are recorded in your memoir you mentioned it earlier 2018's uh, the title is big city cat my life in folk rock and you say you put a lot of your early stories in the book because when you're scuffling, that can get very colorful, is what you said. And you also have other people telling stories to get their points of view in addition to your own writing. So what was it like to revisit your past in memoir form and also to read other people's accounts of your history? Well, it's something you um, you put yourself into kind of an analytical mode. You start to revisit all that and... and uh, sort of um, evaluate some of the choices you made. And so um, it's not it's not something I want to get back into. It's certainly not anytime soon. It's, <laughs> Once was enough. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's a bit, uh, yeah. you know, the, getting too too much involved in the past is, is not not so good. Hmm. But but you, that's what a memoir is, and we had to do yeah. it. My yeah. friend Terry Terry Boyd helped me write the book. She she is an editor by trade, and that was that helped a lot. Yeah. But uh, yeah, it's it's difficult to go back and and look at all that. You you invariably, unless you're perfect, you're going to see things you wish you'd done differently. Mm. And uh, mm. that that's yeah, that's not something you want to you want to. I don't want to write another book right away. Right. Yeah, yeah. You moved from New York City to Nashville for a change in scenery uh, in the 80s. So what major differences did you find between the New York and Nashville music crowds? And how were you able to like relate to the music and relate to Nashville as a Southerner? Well, it's just that I was getting a little tired of um, being in New York City. I've been there for nine or so years and um there were things happening in nashville that i could relate to steve earl calls it the great credibility scare i'm sure you've heard that <laughs> it, and it was a thing where the singer songwriters per se were, were were getting on country radio so uh i wanted to get out of the city and that that attracted me to nashville sure it was further south and, th and that that's fine i'm from mississippi 
But it was all about that um, that thing to where a lot of new names were coming along that were getting on the radio. And major labels were signing people like that. And it was of interest to me. And it, it was of interest for quite a while till that changed. Mm. So it was a good scene. Mm. I want to talk about um, the new album now, Moving Through America. It's a series of stories that you collected on a 10-day solo tour through the Midwest in January of 2017. Um, when you were writing this album about places and people you met while touring, uh, and I believe that this album was written during the pandemic, how did writing songs about characters encountered on the road impact your spirits at a time when you're not able to tour? Well, let me make it clear that the title song is what is written about a 10-day stretch on the road, not the entire album. Um, so that that song is, is just about being out by myself and going through. It started in, uh, I think the first show was... Uh, Fort Wayne, Indiana, and it went all the way up to Milwaukee and that that part of uh, way up way up there. As far as your question, I, I I was writing these songs all along, and they were yeah. Aside from uh, Buffalo Nickel and Fried Oysters, a lot of them are character studies. And that's just the, that's what my observations have been. Mm. I haven't I haven't been uh, inclined emotionally to write a lot of songs about what's been happening happening to me. It, the, the things that have triggered me have just been looking around and seeing uh, seeing something like a. Uh, well, they're characters struggling with their realities. That's what they are. And that's what these songs are. It's too bad your super freak is one for sure. And there are things in there that are broader stuff like uh, climate change. I started a song, Please Don't Eat the Daisies. I didn't know what it was all about, but I soon realized it was a, a song about uh, climate change and global warming. So it became Please Don't Eat the Daisies, Mr. Surf. It's it's a nostalgic thing back to way back when there was a Doris Day movie. You may remember it called Please Don't Eat the Daisies. Mm -hmm. So uh, that's some of the things that are on the record. I don't know that I'm answering your question. I don't think the pandemic really influenced my songwriting. I was assuming I was taking liberties with that question. Yeah, I don't think it really did. Uh, and I didn't write anything about it because it was on the news every night and, and it was mm -hmm. everywhere, you know, on every newspaper. So there wasn't a lot of need for me to call attention to it or I didn't have anything other else to say about yeah. it or new and different, a different angle. You know, when I wrote the oil song and started that in the 70s, it wasn't on every headline and every newscast. It wasn't a crisis of, that was affecting everyone. So I wanted to bring attention to it. <clears throat> you know, yeah, it was affecting everyone because spilling oil into the ocean is ongoing, ongoing, and it's it's it is affecting everyone. Yeah. But but I had something to contribute to that issue. But I, I didn't spend the pandemic analyzing 
that situation in song. Mm, that's interesting, though, to hear your perspective about writing, because like a lot of artists now are like, this is the album I wrote during the pandemic. Here are my feelings about what happened during the pandemic. Um, so I appreciate you sharing that. In listening to you talk about what kind of grabs you in your writing, could you expand on your eye for detail in these characters? Like when you're walking through the world, collecting ideas for inspirations, can you explain what it's like for you um, and how you're noticing details that wouldn't normally stand out to a non-artist? I really don't know. Um, I, I really don't know what people think. I don't know what they're noticing. I really don't know. When I listen to pop radio today and, and I see that um, uh, a song like, uh, shall we say, the record of the year last year, WAP, Cardi B and uh, Megan Thee Stallion is the song of the year. I don't know, is that more of a song or is it a video or what? I don't know what people are thinking. I just know that a phrase like if I see somebody standing outside the hospital smoking a cigarette, it strikes me as ironic. <laughs> or when I when I when I take a look at a at a buffalo nickel, it, it just kind of goes through my mind. This is strange. Mm -hmm. You know, you have a buffalo nickel, you have a buffalo on one side and a, a profile of a, a Native American on the other. And those those two groups didn't fare too well with our westward expansion. Mm -hmm. uh, these are just the kind of things that, that get me going now. It's, it's paradoxes. Um, but it's been true. Of, I've, I've, I've felt that way for a long time, but that's, that's the kind of thing I see around. Cindy, I don't know what other people are thinking, so I can't say, well, a, a songwriter thinks this, whereas so-and-so, a mechanic at the, you know, Pep Boys th is thinking this. I have no idea. Mm. You know, I'm just going with inspiration. For you at this point, what are the realities of touring um, at this point of your career, like pandemic aside, but also like that break must have had some kind of impact like for for you when you're touring, you must look for certain creature comforts, um, and those have possibly changed over the years? Well, I've always kept it really simple. Ever since I was not on the major label trip, and as I recall, that kind of ended in 1992, really. Mm -hmm. uh, I, I made a record for Geffen, and they put it out that year called The American and Me, since then, I've just, if you want to stay in the game, as we said when we started this conversation, I don't have that glaring uh, household name visibility. So, okay, I'm not playing the big places, and I'm glad, uh, you know. And so I'm, I'm keeping the cost down and, and doing it economically. It has, it's not going to change much for me. There's, there's not really anything I'm giving up. I, I, I I don't I I don't want the the touring to lose money, but I'm just trying to keep the cost down and 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 there you go. Just make sure it's mm. not an economic disaster to be out there. <laughs> <laughs>
especially, especially this trip to England. Yeah. Because that's, that's coming up in June, and I'm taking guitarist George Nahas in my band with me. Even that is uh, something we have to manage the cost on. Yeah. You know. Yeah. You said when asked whether you identify as a singer, writer, producer, you said, I'm a songwriter mostly. Most people who write their own material are able to sing it. You can sing the song and have enough of a voice to sing it, and having a voice to deliver the song will encourage you to write. Your singing voice is incredibly unique and honestly pretty irresistible. Uh, someone described it as almost whispering at times, but with a sure command of texture and nuance and a high sense of drama, Steve. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but that's the singing voice, yes. Okay, maybe that's true. Yeah, so what's been your relationship to your singing voice, and how do you value it, especially in relation to your writing? I would just say, in general, that same thing that, that you just said. I wasn't going to go out and struggle to be a recording artist just singing songs that publishers presented to me, ever. So you you, you get, get into this thing, singer-songwriter, and it kind of implies that you may not be, shall we say, uh, Harry Nilsson as a vocalist, as a singer. Mm. But you're going to be a recording artist anyway. You know, so there you go. <laughs> you and I did a guest DJ set a while ago, um, but it really got me into your Instagram feed. And I would tell people, like, Steve Forbert has this pretty fun Instagram feed where he's just, like, posting pictures of fire hydrants and carousel ponies. And uh, in, in getting ready for this interview, I found out back in 2011 that you had an exhibit at an art gallery in Nashville um, where they displayed pictures that you took using a 2005 cell phone, an LG phone, um, called Highway of Sight, pictures that you took on the road. You know, scrolling back through your Instagram, you do have a lot of similar pictures like chairs, signs, parking meters, old cars, other kind of funky Americana things. I really, really enjoyed those pictures and the random captions of these photos. Um, and I'd like to hear more about these pictures, what you liked about taking those pictures, uh, particularly on your Instagram feed, posting them, the reactions you'd get. Uh, and also, this is like a second question to that, but how do the subjects of your photos relate to the subjects of your songs? Well, the second part, I, I think the photos definitely relate to the songs. I, I see the, I see them as, as very, very much um, of, a, of a piece. They're the same outlook. It's just focusing on the everyday and looking at it literally from a different angle, maybe with the with, with the photographs and and just trying to say, oh, this is perhaps uh, interesting or this is beautiful, and it it's just something I I got into, but I never wanted to get an expensive camera. As time went by, I, I actually liked the LG phone best. There was not much detail, but the colors were exaggerated. And I liked it because it had a little bit of that, that hype to it. But I couldn't hang on to that, that, that clamshell foam for long because 
you know, we, we've all had to move into the smartphone thing. There are a few diehards out there, but they're, they're difficult to work with, aren't they? <laughs> yeah, my dad's got a flip phone. <laughs> yeah. So I've had to move into, uh, you know, I be, I'm not carrying around an old clamshell anymore. I'm carrying a smartphone, and I still shoot several pictures a day. You know, and some of them go up on in, in, in Instagram. But it's it's really just fun to um, to see something that makes a, a, a maybe a humorous impression on you, or ironic, or colorful, and, and and if you will, capture it. So it's it's a nice thing. It's it's an artistic sensibility, and it's very yeah. related to the to what the songs say. Yeah, I would say, uh, as a representative of all of your fans on Instagram, to please keep it up. It's been a while since you've been doing it, but maybe back on this tour, you can get back to posting weird things that you find in parking garages. Because I think okay. the people that's what the people want, Steve. All right, Cindy, I'll take your word. I'll try. Okay, great. Um, so before I let you go, will you do the lightning round with me? I reckon. Okay, sure. here we go. What is the first song you learned on the guitar? Quite possibly 500 Miles folk song. Do you like dogs or cats or something else? Well, I have two dogs here with me now, but I love cats. I, I don't dislike cats, but dogs are perfect you know yeah. dogs are just they're this creature that they forgive us you know and where the hell have you been all day you know yeah they, yeah they're not going to give you a hard time they're, they're glad to see you they're so forgiving I, you know you just gotta love dogs they're perfect for us they can live in the home they understand they got to go outside for the to you know the restroom <laughs> and they they're very workable you know yeah. they're they're, uh, <laughs> I love so that I, description. I, and, and there you go. I wrote a song in tribute to our best friend. Uh, you might say, uh, cats, cats are our friend, but um, dogs, dogs are really our best friend. Yeah. And so there's a song on the album. What's a dog think is happening when a you know, fire truck blazes by? What do they make <laughs> of that? It's, it's random. There's no pattern. And what the hell is it? You know? Uh, these two dogs here with me now, they bark at that. You know, it, the, the yeah. siren bothers their ears, I suppose, and they'll howl. Yeah. Next question. Who is your first celebrity crush? Celebrity crush? I don't know that I've ever really had one. I, I don't know. Um... I don't know. I found a Jean-Vive Bujold attractive in the movie King of Hearts, but I don't. I don't know. <laughs> that was later. I don't. I don't know. As a kid, I guess you mean. I, I can't remember. What was the first album you bought with your own money? Probably High Tide and Green Grass, The Rolling Stones. Nice. Ah, oh, well, this next question is appropriate. The Beatles or the Rolling Stones? I just don't see why you would want to, you know, eliminate one or the other. I, I, <laughs> you refuse you know, the question? 
Yeah, I refuse to question. I mean, why would you want to, if you're a Beatle freak, why would you want to eliminate the Rolling Stones? You know, a record like Paint It Black is staggering. And it was so weird to hear a line like, uh, like a newborn baby, it just happens every day. So, you know, that, that was uh, pretty cynical for its time. I believe that was Paint It Black might have been 66, 65. You're right, that's so, in Paint It Black. Yeah, so, uh, you know, you, you've got to have them both. Okay. All right, here's one more question. Where is the most beautiful place you've ever visited? Well, I uh, really think that uh, I, I, I went to Rome a few years ago with my girlfriend, Diane. I liked that a lot. Uh, I liked Rome better than the famous Paris, France. Well, Rome is just funkier. It's just funkier. Yeah. And uh, it, it just seemed more, I, I don't know, it, more tangible to me. I, li- I like Rome yeah. a, a, a lot. That's cool. Good answer. Well, Steve, thank you so much for talking to me and taking so much time. And I really enjoyed this interview. Um, So thanks again. And uh, congrats on the new album. Well, thanks a lot. And I hope you can cut this up into something that flows good and fast (laughs) and, uh, and people enjoy it. So thank you, Cindy. This episode of Basic Folk was produced by me, Cindy Howes. Alex Stanton composes our music. Basic Folk is on the Bluegrass Situation Podcast Network. You can find us there wherever you get podcasts. You can also search for us on the SiriusXM app. Just open it up and search for Basic Folk. Or you can find us on our website, basicfolk.com. Okay, we'll talk to you next time. Bye.